Good morning. Maybe I'm a little too loud. I'll back up a little bit. Uh, I'd like to begin this morning by reading scripture. I'll be reading from the NIV translation. Either follow along in your Bible or on the screen as, uh, as it's presented for us. From 2 Samuel, the, the sixth chapter. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, uh, which was on a hill. Usa and Ohio, uh, son, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it. Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs, with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, which is a percussion instrument, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Usa reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Usa because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath and had broken out against Usa. And to the day, the place is called Perez Usa. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, uh, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, uh, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told that the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought, the ark, brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those, uh, who, were, uh, when those were, who were carrying the, the, the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, David's wife, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in a place inside a tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their own homes. 
When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls, of the servants, as a vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his household when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, how grateful we are for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We pray this morning that as we, as we open your word, we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, draw us unto you, that Christ might be lifted up and glorified, and, and that we might have a, a, an opportunity to worship you and praise your name. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm privileged this morning to share God's word with you. I, uh, first of all, I want to welcome Pat and Brenda this morning from Texas. Thank you for being here. Others of you who are visiting as well, glad to have you here. And uh, pray that Lord, the Lord will speak to you from his word. I'm 80 years old. I don't have any great words of wisdom even at the age of 80. So uh, pray with me that the Holy Spirit will speak from his word this morning to our hearts. Without that, nothing happens. Nothing. I have a plaque that I keep on my desk, and I don't know if you can read it from there. It says, God is faithful. That'll be the underlying theme of this morning's message. God is faithful in each of our lives. Again, pray with me that the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts this morning. Uh, Technology impacts our lives in many ways. Computers, satellite phones, smartphones, AI, artificial intelligence, and it's, this is just beginning to uh, come upon us. Thank you, boy, I, I can see now. That, that is really good, thank you so much. Uh, uh, artificial intelligence is just beginning to impact our lives. And you can think of the different ways uh, in terms of uh, cars that drive themselves. It's amazing. No driver in the car, still goes. You can order food deliveries and they'll arrive at your house with no driver. Okay, you can uh, enter the operating table and it's a robot that's operating on you. This is amazing stuff. Uh, and also it's spreading into different areas of teaching and uh, uh, assisted living, also service restaurants and police. They'll, they'll send in like a robotic thing to disarm a bomb so that uh, people won't be in danger. Well, this world of computers in which we live, I know just about, just enough about computers to be dangerous. In fact, uh, 
I text my granddaughter, MJ. She's 23. She'll be attending uh, Colorado State University in Fort Collins. And I, I wrote to her, help, I just pushed the wrong button and ordered a new car online. What do I do now? Uh, I used to have a flip phone. And uh, T-Mobile had this special offer where you can turn in your flip phone for a brand new phone. And I thought, oh, this is great. So we got the, we got the, the smartphone. Actually, the smartphone is smarter than I am. Uh, it can do many more things than I'm capable of doing with it. But I use this flip phone to keep in contact with my grandchildren. We, had le we have 11 grandchildren. And so I rattle their cage every now and then just to see what's going on in their life. And, uh, so, and that was the case with MJ when I, with tongue in cheek, told her that I'd uh, ordered a car online. I'd like to touch on the technology of picture taking. Okay, uh, my grandfather gave me some tintypes of my great-grandparents, uh, Olin Thrasher and Daisy Thrasher. Never met them, but I had this tintype that my grandfather gave to me. And we're all familiar with and with the tintypes. Even at age 80, they precede me. So uh, I, found, I found it quite interesting. But when I was a young kid, for Christmas, I got a black and white brownie uh, Kodak camera. And I was just thrilled with it. You take pictures with it. I think it was about 12 pictures. And then you take, it to take the film to the drugstore. And in a week or 10 days, you get it back. And maybe nine of the 12 pictures came out fine, and you put them in a scrapbook. But that was just the nature of taking pictures at that time. Then came single lens reflex cameras, slide cameras. And they were amazing. They took slides and prints as well. But colored, colored pictures with ectochrome and uh, chromochrome uh, uh, film. And then came Polaroid cameras. You remember Polaroid cameras? I mean, you take a picture with those, and the picture would develop right before your very eyes. However, the color was not that good, and over time, the color would fade. Now, now Polaroid cameras are having a revival in this day and time, and I think that they're coming back. I don't know much about that, whether or not they've proved, improved on the color and uh, the durability of the pictures or not. But uh, they were, at that time, they were truly amazing. Well, now we have digital cameras, cell phones that take pictures, and you can send them instantaneously to grandkids. And I don't know if they go by cell towers or through the cloud, whatever that is. But it goes from here to there and just instantaneously. And it's almost like a miracle from my perspective. Okay. This morning, what I'd like to do is I take, I'd like to take a couple of snapshots in, in, in Scripture. Okay? We can look at, the, at the, the life of David, and we could spend many weeks looking at his life. And uh, God would have a message from each individual thing. But what I'd like to do is take a snapshot in the picture of David's life and also one in the life of Solomon. And then I would like to take a snapshot in your life and in my life this morning. So if you would, let's again turn back to scripture if you want to put it back on, on screen or follow along in your Bible. And I'm not going to reread this, but I'd like to highlight some points that God has made clear in this. Okay, 
First of all, uh, when we're looking at David, we know that David was chosen by God while, while King Saul was on the throne. David was called a man after God's own heart. He was faithful to the Lord. And yet, when he did sin, he was repentant. And he loved the Lord, uh, our God, with all of his heart. And God used him in a mighty way. He, I, I'd like to, to, to put the context before the passage of scripture that we read this morning. First of all, Philistines had captured the ark, which was a symbol of God's presence among his people. And I'm not going to read these passages, but if you're taking note, fine, you can take down the reference. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, we find that Israel went into battle with the Philistines. 4,000 soldiers were killed that day. So then they decided that the next time we go into battle, we'll take the ark of the Lord and it will go before us, and God will give us the victory. And so they took the ark of the Lord, and also Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, from, the, from the tribe of Levi, went along to carry the ark. So what happened? In the second battle with the Philistines, Israel lost 30,000 soldiers. A runner was sent back to Jerusalem. And Eli the high priest was sitting at the city gate. And at this point, he was 98 years of age, blind and fat. He sat in a chair, and the runner came with this information that the, the Israelites had suffered heavy losses, that Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had been killed, and their ark had been captured. Eli fell over backwards, he broke his neck, and he died there at the city gate. The ark remained with the Philistines for seven months, brought all kinds of problems to the Philistines. They brought the ark into their holy place where Dagon, their false god, reigned. They kept their false god. They came the next morning, and Dagon had fallen over, and his head had been broken off and his limbs broken off beside the ark. And tumors began to form in the lives of the Philistines. So the Philistines sent the ark on a cart back to Israel. It wandered in the countryside, and it came to rest in a town called Kiriath-Jerim. And it stayed there for 20 years, two long decades, uh, away from the, the children of God. Again, remember, it's a symbol of God's presence uh, in the midst of the Israelite people. Okay, let's fast forward to the snapshot that we have of David in Scripture this morning. Okay, just in the verses in chapter 5, from verse 17 and following up to chapter 6, we see that David uh, defeated the Philistines. And then we come to our Scripture passage, and in chapter 6, and David had a plan. He formulated a plan. He wanted to return the Ark of the Covenant into the, to the midst of the Israelite people. So he went out with, with his army, to with uh, his forces, to capture the 
ark and take it back to Jerusalem. And that day, uh, as we saw in chapter 5, the Philistines were defeated. David formulated a plan. David was in charge of Israel. He was the king. He was God's appointed king. And so when he went out, he made a plan. He would take a new cart. It wasn't one from the bone pile. He didn't refurbish a cart. It wasn't one that had been used before. It was a brand new cart. We see this in verse 3. It states this fact twice, as a matter of fact. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadad, which was on a hill. Usa and Ohio, the sons of Abinadad, uh, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ohio was walking in front. And all of Israel was celebrating. David was celebrating before the Lord, as we see in verse 5. And then they came to the threshing floor of Nacom, and the oxen stumbled, and apparently the ark was about to fall off. So Usa reached out, walking beside it, reached out to stabilize the ark of God. God struck him down, killed him, right there beside the ark. We see the reaction of David. The Lord's anger burned against Usa because of the irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down. He died, on the, died beside the ark of God. David was angry. David was afraid of the Lord. And he, and he formulated this question, how can the ark of the God, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How can I get it back to Jerusalem, the city of David? His intentions were good. How do we know that? First of all, he wanted to return the ark to the, in the midst of the people. Secondly, he, did, he put it on a new cart. Thirdly, they were, with all of Israel, they were praising God and dancing and honoring God before the transport of this ark back to the city of David. And yet things turned sour. David was angry. He was afraid of the Lord. So what did he do? He left the ark out there. How am I ever going to get it back? Instead, he took it, and this is verse uh, 10, 11 maybe. I don't see the reference here. Instead, he took it, uh, verse 10, took it aside to the house of Abed Edom, the Gittite, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Abed-Edom, uh, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his ho entire household. The other aspect of David's desire to get the ark of the Lord back in the midst of Israel, that the Lord might bless them. Might, they might have a sense of his presence right in their very midst. It happened in the life of Abed-Edom for the three months that it was out there that he left it in his household. So David went back, determined to bring the Ark of the Lord back, back to Jerusalem. Note down in verse, uh, verse 12. Maybe it's verse 13. David went down and he brought up the Ark of God from the house of Abed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing with those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken, uh, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. 
Notice that he was carrying the ark at this point. He didn't put it on a he didn't put it on a cart, even a new cart. Why? Because God, and this is back in uh, uh, Exodus 25 verses uh, 12 through 14. God had given specific instructions on how to transport the cart. They were to, there were rings on the four corners. They were put a pole through the two rings on each side. And then a member from the house of Levi on each corner and, and end of the poles on each side would carry the ark and transport it. David gone from plan A, his plan, to plan B, which should have been plan A, the Lord's plan. When he looked to the Lord, looked back to the Lord, and found out how the Lord wanted to tra transport it. No possibility that it was going to fall. He was being totally and completely obedient under the Lord in the way he transported, uh, transported the ark back to uh, Israel. And the other thing is, noted, note that, he, that David is wearing, wearing a linen ephod. Linen ephod was uh, an apron-like garment that the, the priestly uh, members wore. And he wasn't wearing his royal robes. He was wearing, wearing this priestly linen ephod. And notice here in verse 14, David wearing a linen ephod danced before the Lord with all of his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought out the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. And this is key. This is key. Note this. I'm not going to read the entire passage, the rest of the passage. But he says, uh, David wearing, uh, danced before the Lord. Okay, come down to where they're entering the house of Israel and Michal, his wife, Saul's daughter, looking out. And she sees uh, David. When, when she sees King Saul leaping and dancing before the Lord, again, before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in a place inside the tent that David had pitched. David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. Again, look down in verse 21. Uh, after David had blessed the people, he went to his own house, and there he was met by his wife. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord, again, who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his household who appointed me ruler over the uh, Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. And yet, Michal, Saul's wife, in mockery. This is back in verse 20. She said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself this day, disrobing. Uh, essentially referring to the fact that he's taking off his royal robes. He had on this linen ephod before in the sight of the slave, uh, disrobing in the sight of the slave girl and uh, of his servants as a vulgar fellow would. David, you're making a fool out of yourself before the people in the streets. Did you not realize that? And we see that uh, uh, Saul's daughter, uh, David's wife, uh, bore no children to the day of her death. Interesting story, snapshot from David's life. I think that we're all familiar with the story. 
David had tried to do things his way. And what it came down to is this. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. I'll repeat that. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. David's plan A ended up in disaster. When he looked to the Lord and followed the Lord's direction and obeyed completely, the Lord blessed and provided. David was afraid. He was angry, as anyone would be. He was confused. His intentions were good, but look what happened. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. Let's look at a snapshot in the life of Solomon. Solomon, of course, is David's son. And I think that we're all familiar with this. If you're taking notes, you could look in 1 Kings 3, verses 1 through 15, or you could look in 2 Chronicles 1. The Lord appeared to Solomon at night. I assume it was a dream. It doesn't say that. It says it appeared at night. Okay, and he asked Solomon, uh, ask, he said to Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And of course, we know that Solomon asked for wisdom. He could have asked for wealth, could have asked for power, could have asked for prestige. But he asked for wisdom so that he might uh, rule God's people and honor God in this way. Well, God gave him wisdom, but he also gave him wealth. He also gave him power and prestige. How do we know this? Scripture tells us this. The Queen of Sheba heard of the wisdom of King Solomon. And she came. It's thought that the Queen of Sheba was an Ethiopian queen. She came from some distance. She'd heard about the wisdom of David and his wealth. And she wanted to see it firsthand. So she came, and this is recorded in, in uh, 1 Kings 10, verses 1 through 10. And uh, she was amazed, absolutely amazed. And King Solomon shared some of the wealth with her, and she took it back with her. However, Solomon took his eyes off of the Lord. Solomon had it all. God had provided and blessed and given him everything, far beyond that which he asked for. He married foreign women with their foreign gods, false gods, he lost his focus. The children of Israel lost their focus on Jehovah God and also began to worship false gods. So God tore the kingdom out of Solomon's hands. This is recorded in 1 Kings 11, 26, verses 26 and following. Jeroboam rebelled against the king and Solomon lost the kingdom. Solomon was considered the wisest man that ever lived at that time, possibly to this day. And yet Solomon struggled. In his old age, he was wrestling with the essence of life. What does life mean? He's a writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, and you recall this. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless 
everything is meaningless. And he went on to itemize wisdom. Better than folly or foolishness, but it's still meaningless. When we die, does it really matter how wise we were? That's what Solomon was saying. And he goes on and he indicates pleasures are meaningless. Work is meaningless. Achievement of our labor is meaningless. Advancement is meaningless. Riches are meaningless. The richest man, God blessed him abundantly. And he had everything that a person could desire. He was successful in the fact that he built the temple, rebuilt the temple. He built the wall around Jerusalem. And yet, when he took his eyes off of God, when he lost his focus, he lost it all. All of his wealth, all of his power, the prestige. And he's wrestling with this whole issue in his years as, he, as he's grown older. You look at the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a very short book, only 12 chapters. In the very final chapter, he comes to this. He restates the premise, the original premise. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. What is the purpose of life, he's saying. And finally, he comes to this conclusion. The real purpose, this is in verse 13 in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Okay, in conclusion, I'd like to take a snapshot of you and me today. And the snapshot, very simply, is applying the truths that we see in scripture to your life and to mine. I've often said this, and I truly mean this. Theology for the sake of theology, and a quarter or half a dollar, a dollar anymore, won't buy you a cup of coffee. It's not about theology. It's about, uh, certainly, this is important to establish God's principles and God's teaching before it. But then we need to allow the Holy Spirit to apply those teachings and principles to our own lives. And if, we, and if we don't, it's just another story. How many of us this morning are unfamiliar with the story of David and how he returned the ark to Jerusalem? No, we all know the story very well. How many of us are unfamiliar with Solomon and how he lost uh, uh, God's blessing and, how, uh, God, and lost the kingdom and God's working in his life? We all know that. We need to apply those truths to our lives today. Have you ever come to the point in your life where you're struggling? Life is not easy. Linda and I were unemployed for a number of years, excuse me, a number of months, a number of years ago. And there wasn't enough food to eat. We were on food stamps for two months and fuel assistance. This was in North Dakota. And we began putting out fires. By that, I mean this. Hot water heater would go. We didn't have the money. Maxed the credit card out to the, to the very top limit. I asked my father, would you loan us money? I need about $1,500. Sure, I went through that. Three, three little kids, bills going, house payment, insurance payments. We were struggling. Humidity running down the basement walls, high humidity in North Dakota, cool down the basement, condensation running down the walls, 
needed a dehumidifier. We didn't have the money for it. It's going to ruin the walls. I think that, and the whole, at this point, I was, I was asking. I didn't know what to do. I'm tired of our family. Everyone's looking to me. Linda says, I'm hungry. Kids got fed, but the Lord provided. The Lord is faithful. And I said to the Lord, Lord, what's going on? My intentions were good. I was looking to him. We hadn't turned away. Trying to honor him in every area of our lives. Like David, I was confused. I was angry. I didn't know what was going to happen to our family. We've all been there. We've had sickness. We've had struggles. We've had economical, economic problems. Let me ask you a question. Does God possess your, our entire lives? All that we have, all that we hope to have, our families, everything? It's not about partial obedience. It's about total obedience. David learned that by doing it his way, wasn't, the right, wasn't what the Lord wanted. Didn't honor the Lord. It's confused, angry, afraid. We've all been there. Partial obedience is not obedience at all. Solomon learned that it's not about work. Our culture would tell us that our self-worth is determined by what we do. Richard, whether we're an architect, whether we're a chemist, whether we're a pastor, whether we work on uh, appliances, Ron. I left NDSU and after 25 years, and people said to me, Paul, when you retire, what are you going to do? You'll miss it. I said, no, I don't, I don't determine my self-worth by what I do but rather by who I am in Jesus Christ. Society would have us think that what we do determines who we are. And as men, especially men, fall into this trap. It's not true. It's absolutely not true. Solomon found, learned that it's not about wealth. How many homes you have, how nice your home is. Many of you have been in our home. We have a nice home. Nothing luxurious, but it's very nice. But it's not about a home. It's not about anything we possess. I look around me, and I'm 80 years of age, as I indicated earlier. In five years, six years, Lord willing, maybe longer, I don't know. It's in the Lord's hand. Everything that we see, everything that we own, will belong to someone else. Absolute truth. How important is it? When I was younger, my dad taught me, when you spend your money, make sure you have something to show for it. I held on too tightly when I was young. 
Or you're getting a family together, you're trying to buy a house, you're trying to formulate a plan to get your education and a future for you and your family. But it's not about those things, and I held on too tightly. At 80 years of age, I can see the horizon from where I stand. It's just over there. It's not far off. I don't know if it'll be five years or longer. Only the Lord knows. But it's not about possessions. It's not about position. Whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, or an Indian chief, it doesn't matter. Are we living intentionally for the Lord? Bill, Liz, I asked if you would make me a, a t-shirt and silk screen, uh, John 3.16 on the lapel. Why? Okay, when I go to the grocery store, I'd like to share Christ with someone. How do you share Christ with someone in the grocery store? Difficult, could happen. God could provide a way. But I thought to myself, what if I were to put John 3.16 up here and people notice? If someone says, what's that all about? I have an opportunity to answer the question and very briefly tell them about the love of Jesus Christ and what it means to me and what it could mean to them. Not getting on a soapbox, not backing them in a corner, not making them feel uncomfortable, sharing in a real way about what Jesus means to me. Are we intentional in honoring and serving the Lord? Do we look for opportunities? It might be simple, something as simple, simple as giving a plate of cookies to a neighbor or friend, reaching out and touching a person who is hurting, or visiting a person who is sick. But your response might be, Paul, are you talking friendship evangelism? I don't care what you call it. It involves reaching out and touching lives where people are, just as Jesus did. Caring, loving, sharing, and giving to people in Jesus' name. You need a scripture passage to support this? Turn with me in your scripture, and I think that we're all familiar with it, but I'm going to read it. This is in chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 31. Jesus' own words. He was judging people at this time, separating believers from non-believers. Do you remember what he had to say? Let me read it just briefly. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will gather before him and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come you who, who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since, uh, since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to, to drink. Uh, I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, and thirsty and give you something to drink? 
And when did we see you stranger and invite you in, needing clothes and clothe you? Uh, when did you, we see you sick and in pri or in prison and go and visit you? And the king replies, I tell you the truth, whatever you have done for one of the least of the brothers of mine, you did for me. We have to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within each one of us. No question about that. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. For this life, from that point until you, till we face Christ to face and beyond, we have eternal life. Eternal life will not begin the day we die and face God. It begins the day when we accept Jesus as our personal Savior. And we'll live for him from that point on. Sure, we'll die physically, but we'll live from that day forward for, for eternity. Are we fully following God's leading in each of our lives every day? We talk about it. Why is the Holy Spirit not working in our midst? Oh, he is. He is. But look at the first century church. Thousands came to know Christ in a personal way, turned their lives over to him. Could it be the fact that it's not the fact that the Holy Spirit isn't as powerful today as he was back then? Absolutely not true. Maybe we're not looking to him fully. Maybe we haven't turned our lives over to him completely. Maybe this small area of our lives that we're holding on to. Maybe we've lost our focus. I lose my focus. I have to resubmit to the Holy Spirit. I have to refocus my life upon God. I've made mistakes. I've hurt my family. I've hurt God. I've not honored him with my life like I want to, like I desire to. It's no different for me than it was for the life of David. I get angry. I get afraid. I get confused. My values go askew for a time. Then I refocus. Have we fully committed our lives to Christ? Until we do, we'll not see the kind of movement within our midst that God would have. And for one purpose, not that we fill these seats and we have 300 people here. I'm not talking about numbers. That certainly we can honor God through numbers. Nothing wrong with that. But what I'm talking about is honoring God in such a way that it brings glory to him. The whole duty of man, your duty and mine, fear God, honor God, and keep his commandments. Pretty simple until you put, try to put the rubber to the road. It's not easy to do. Without the working of the Holy Spirit in my life and in yours, it's never going to happen. Never going to happen. It's going to be a self-effort, like it was in the life of Solomon, in the life of David. It didn't work. Why do we have to go to plan B, which is, is, should be plan A, the Lord's plan, after we have struggled on our own? We don't need to go there if we'll just completely commit our lives into the Lord's hands. We know it. Is this a new message? Is this something we've never heard before? Why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? Let's resubmit our lives to the Holy Spirit this morning. Commit our lives to him. And frankly, from a, from a human point of view, be amazed at the way the Lord works within our midst. God wants to work and use you and me. 
to bring honor to his name. I'm not talking about numbers. I'm not talking about anything other than bringing honor and glory to God. If we can see it from that perspective, God will change our individual ministry, our collective ministry, around completely. If you share Jesus Christ with someone that you know, if he never comes to this church, it doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter. That's not what it's about. And just very briefly, and I'll close. Pastored a small church in northern Minnesota. Okay, northern Minnesota, it's all Catholic and Lutheran. Many people didn't even know that the small Baptist church on Maple Street existed. Very small. 35 people attend. And yet, when I went there, I went with the idea that, uh, like when I stand before God, I'm not going to claim my Baptist heritage. I'm going to claim the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, I went there to minister in the name of Jesus Christ, not in the name of the Baptist church. I wouldn't have got to first base amongst Catholics and Lutherans. I sat down with the Catholic priest and the Lutheran minister and asked for their input. Asked for God's blessing on the ministry. Different day, different time. Get it. But the point is, uh, there were people that, that weren't Baptist. Person that played the piano was Lutheran. Person that came and sat in the back was Catholic. Never joined the church. I said, why? I don't understand. She said, my family is Catholic. I want to be able to reach out. She knew Christ personally, but she wanted to be able to reach out to her family. And I told her, don't join the church. Have the ministry to your family and allow God to use you there. Was that wrong? I don't know. I don't think so. God can use us if we open up our lives and allow him to, to uh, let Jesus work through our lives. Will you make that commitment this morning before? Maybe you're here this morning. You've never come to the place of uh, committing your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't follow Jesus. Will you make the decision to follow him this morning? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is only one way. You can cut it any way you want. There's only one way. And that way is through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. Will you make a decision this morning? Let us bow in prayer. Lord, how grateful we are for the truth of your word. These accounts in the life of David and Solomon, familiar to all of us. Lord, that's not what it's about. We ask that the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts this morning, apply the truth to our lives and change our lives, that your name might be glorified, that Jesus Christ might be lifted up and honored this morning, and that glory might be given to you. And again, we praise in your name. Amen.